All right, today we begin the final section of the book of Revelation, and we come to chapter 20. This final section will run, obviously, from this chapter to the end of the book, chapter 22. And, you know, uh, we got our work cut out for us today because Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most hotly debated chapters in the Bible. The main debate surrounds the meaning of the millennium, 1,000 years. That is mentioned six times in the verses uh, 2 through 7 of the chapter. The question is whether or not this is to be taken literally, like literally 1,000 years, or symbolically. Is 1,000 symbolic of some other uh, time frame? Furthermore, regardless of whether or not it's taken literally or symbolically, when is this supposed to take place? Some believe this millennium, however you define it, is referring to a period of time that is to take to pl- take place immediately after Jesus returns. So he comes back and then, then you have the millennium. While others believe that it's referring to a period of time before he returns. That is, it's happening now and will lead up to the return of Christ. Full cards on the table. Um, I hold the latter view. Many respected scholars hold uh, that the millennium takes place after Christ returns. Uh, Many respected scholars hold uh, the opposite view. I tend to hold the the view that the millennium uh, is happening now and uh, and will culminate in the return of Christ, that that it's not something that will happen after he returns. So I believe that chapter 20 as the beginning of the final section of Revelation begins all over again with the first coming of Jesus, just as all the other sections did, and describes events that take place during the entire church age, leading up to and including the second coming of Jesus. Therefore, for that reason and others that I hope to lay out in part today, I believe the 1,000 years repeatedly referred to in chapter 20 are a reference to a symbolic period of time before the return of Christ, a period of time going on right now. So those are my cards on the table. Uh, strap in and we'll try to see how I, I arrive at that. The chapter is broken up in this way. Verses 1 through 3 describe events that happen as a result of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead during his first coming. Verses 4 through 6 describe that same event from the vantage point of heaven. All right? So verses 1 through 3 describe events that happened as a result of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead during his first coming. And then verses 4 through 6 describe that same event from the vantage point of heaven. Verses 7 through 10 describe the period of time immediately preceding the second coming of Christ. And then verses 11 through 15 describe the final judgment that will take place at the return of Christ. This final section um, over the next two chapters will spend a great deal of time describing that blessed state of the redeemed. Um, But that that blessed state described in chapters 21 and 22 is all the more blessed because of the judgments dealt out in in chapter 20 here. The reality of chapter 21 uh, that in verse 4 puts it, that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, is only the case because of the reality that we find in chapter 20. 
and, and other, other previous descriptions of the end that we've seen in Revelation. Remember that in chapter 20, that description of the end was described as death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. So Revelation 20 is a chapter that requires some careful thinking. So let's take a look at it. Um, let's think about this 1,000 years. Is it, is it a literal time period or is it symbolic? Like I said, there are many who take the millennium referred to in this chapter to be a literal 1,000-year period of time. But in my view, for several reasons, this seems doubtful. For one thing, consider throughout the book of Revelation how much has been symbolic rather than literal. In this chapter alone, we find um, images of thrones and serpents and marks on foreheads. I mean, all are symbolic images representing other realities. Similarly, think, think back to Revelation. Almost every number, specifically every number we've encountered in Revelation, has also been symbolic rather than literal. Why address seven churches in Revelation rather than eight churches in chapters 1 through 3? Why refer to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God? I mean, there were seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. We saw the, all the redeemed of the Lord symbolically numbered as 144,000. As if, there, are there only 144,000 believers? No, that's a symbolic number. As well as by uh, the, all the redeemed of the Lord being represented by 24 elders gathered around the throne. Twice... We saw symbolic uh, periods of time uh, of 1,260 days. And it goes on and on. Over and over again in Revelation, simply because of the nature of the book and the genre, this is apocalyptic literature, numbers uh, aren't intended to be taken literally. That, that's not to say they're without meaning. Just because you don't take it literally doesn't mean it's meaningless. They are full of meaning meaning arrived at by interpreting and understanding it symbolically. Just uh, such is the case here in chapter 20 with the repeated mention of 1,000 years. It would almost be odd to all of a sudden interpret this number literally when every other number in the book has been taken symbolically. Furthermore, other passages of Scripture flatly tell us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Second Peter 3, 8, Psalm 90, verse 4. For these reasons and many others that, that couldn't be recited here for the sake of time, the millennium referenced in, ver in Revelation 20 should be, in my estimation, uh, taken symbolically. And what does it symbolize? A definite but lengthy period of time. Not a literal 1,000 years, but that number 1,000 symbolizes a definite but long period of time. But when is it? Okay, when does it happen? So the millennium refers to a definite but lengthy period of time, but when is it? When, when does this period of time take place? Does it happen after Jesus comes back, as some understand it, or is it going on right now before the Lord returns? I believe and I humbly do it. There are respected scholars who believe otherwise. But I believe the text indicates that it refers to the lengthy period of time uh, beginning with the first coming of Christ 
and ending with the second coming. Do you see what that is? That time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, how would you describe that? As a definite but long period of time. So let's think of a couple of reasons for thinking this. Um, and, and well, let me just say this, uh, the main reasons for thinking this. I'm going to add a little footnote here. Just as a matter of interpreting a passage of, of Scripture, it's always best to start by consulting other relevant passages in the immediate context or within that same book before moving on to passages elsewhere in Scripture. So, for example, if I want to understand what John is saying here in Revelation, I would first consult the immediate context, then I would consult other passages within the same book of Revelation, and then I might consult other relevant passages that were written by John, same author, and then I would consider uh, passages elsewhere in Scripture. So, all right, just, just an interpretation note there. One key already alluded to is that chapter 20 begins the seventh of seven sections in Revelation. And, and what we've seen in all of these sections is that each section begins at the first coming and ends at the second coming. We have no pressing reason to interpret this last section any differently than all the others. Another key to, to in the immediate context is the fact uh, that in verse 1, there is a reference to the key to the bottomless pit. This is very likely a reference to the same keys that Jesus was holding back in chapter 1, verse 18, the keys of death and Hades. It is noteworthy that in, in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus held those keys not by virtue of his second coming, but by virtue of his death and resurrection during his first coming. Remember what he said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus has those keys by virtue of what he did at his first coming, not what, what is still waiting for his second coming. Furthermore, a parallel passage to Revelation 21 through 3, a parallel passage to this is way back in chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. And in that passage, in Revelation 12, 7 through 12, we read that Satan is thrown down, thrown down. That's in 12, 9, and 10, just like here in chapter 20, verse 3. Satan is thrown down uh, in chapter 12 by virtue not of Jesus' second coming, again, but by virtue of his death, resurrection, and ascension at his first coming. That's Revelation 12, 5 through 10. So in this parallel passage in, in chapter 12, um, Satan is thrown down by virtue of what Jesus did at his first coming. So these are reasons in the immediate context and other passages in Revelation to believe that the thousand years referenced in Revelation 20 refers to a lengthy time which began with the first coming of Christ and his, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension and his victory over Satan by virtue of those things. Other passages in the New Testament seem to confirm this view. Jesus himself talked about uh, binding Satan or binding the strong man in, in Matthew 12, 28 during his first coming. The same word used in Revelation 20, verse 2, where Satan is bound for a thousand years is the word that Jesus himself used in that verse, Matthew 12, 28, about binding the strong man. Also in Luke 10, 17 through 19, Jesus 
saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven and during his first coming gave his disciples authority over all the power of the enemy for their mission. Additionally, as Jesus prepared to go to the cross, knowing what it would accomplish, he triumphantly declared in John 12, 31 to 32, before he even went to the cross, he said, Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The ruler of this world will be cast out. By, by virtue of what? His second coming? No, by virtue of what he was about to do on the cross in his resurrection. Paul tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he tells us in Colossians 2.15 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And finally, in Hebrews 2.14, we read that Jesus went to the cross so that, quote, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, in my view, the binding of Satan that we read about in Revelation 21 through 3 seems to be a result of Jesus' death and resurrection at his first coming, not of his second coming, based on evidence both within Revelation as well as other places in the New Testament. When Jesus came the first time, he bound Satan during the church age. Uh, that, and that church age is described here as a millennium, a thousand years symbolically. Bound Satan during that time period until he comes again. But that leads to a very obvious question. Is Satan really bound right now? You know, that's, the, that's, the, that's always the argument against this view. Well, if, if Jesus bound Satan at his first coming... Why doesn't it seem like he's very bound? In some ways, it, it does not look like Satan is bound at all. But then again, a careful look at Revelation 20 verse 3 does not say that Jesus bound Satan in every way possible so that Satan could do absolutely nothing. It does not say that. To the contrary, we're specifically told that Jesus bound him for a thousand years, that is, during uh, the whole church age from the first coming to the second coming. Why? Verse 2 and 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, two questions readily arise from that. One, who are the nations? So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Well, who are the nations? And two, in what way is Satan bound from deceiving them? So let's answer those two questions. Who are the nations referred to in, in verse 3? Well, a good place to start might be to consult the most recent usage of that phrase in Revelation. Remember my footnote about interpreting a passage. Start small and work your way out. So what's the most recent use of that phrase, the nations, in Revelation? We come across that phrase in the last chapter. Revelation 19.15 is the most recent verse to Revelation 20, verse 3, to use that phrase. And there, Revelation 19, 15, we read, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. In that verse, it seems pretty clear that the nations is a reference to the unbelieving nations, since according to Revelation 19, the nations are those who will be judged at the return of Christ. So it seems in, that in chapter 20, verse 3, Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the unbelieving nations any longer. But what does that mean? 
Here's what I think it means. In short, it means that Satan will not be able to stop the effective preaching of the gospel and the growth of the church. Jesus promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell, the gates of hell, would not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. Remember again John 12 where Jesus said, the ruler of this world would be cast out by his death and resurrection. And this would ensure that sinners would effectively be drawn to saving faith in him. Someone might object here and point to passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 4, which says of Satan that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That verse seems to show that Satan is still pretty effective at deceiving the nations. But that same passage sets forth the powerful sovereignty of God in snatching sinners from Satan's strongest deception. Paul declares two verses later in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. That is a reference to Genesis 1, 3. Let there be light. That same God and that same power has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes back during this, this long but definite period of time of the church age, Satan's deceptive powers are bound to a degree that he, he is most certainly unable to prevent the effective missionary enterprise of the church. You, that, that's a comforting word. Anthony Hookham summarizes it well when he says, uh, he says, and I quote, the, the binding of Satan, uh, this is in his book, by the way, The Bible and the Future, Anthony Hookema, that's H-O-E-K-E-M-A, uh, The Bible and the Future, I heartily recommend you that book. He says of this, the binding of Satan described in Revelation 20, 1 through 3, therefore, means that throughout the gospel age in which we now live, the influence of Satan, though certainly not annihilated, is so curtailed that he cannot prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations of the world. Because of the binding of Satan during this present age, the nations cannot conquer the church, but the church is conquering the nations. End quote. It does say that at the, the, the symbol, at the end of the symbolic thousand-year period, like at the end of this church age, long but definite period of time, it says in verse 3 that Satan must be released for a little while. Released for a little while. Well, what happens then? Well, that's our final point. What happens then? The end of the world. <laughs> when it says that Satan must be released for a little while, verse 3, it seems to indicate that right before Jesus returns, Satan's deceptive activity and ability will increase. He will lock down the nations, uh, ver ver verses 7 and 8, he, the nations in his deceptions, harden them against God and gather them for battle against the Lord. And I do want you to notice that verse 3 says that Satan must be released for a little while. He must. Well, that shows you that there's a purpose of God behind it. The passage makes it clear that his purpose is to bring the final judgment to pass. The day when the devil who had deceived the nations, verse 10, the devil who had deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Furthermore, all who opposed the Lord and who died in unbelief, 
or were hardened in their unbelief when Christ returned, it says in verses 12 and 14, they will be judged according to what they had done. That is the, that is, yeah, that's, that's bad news. <laughs> it's bad news if I think I'm going to be judged for what I've done because I have sinned and sinned greatly, and, and, and we all have, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a fearful thought to be judged according to what we've done. It needs to be said that believers will be judged according to works too. But the only difference is believers will be judged on the basis of Jesus' works, not our own. The next two chapters will lay out the glorious hope that belongs to every believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the close of chapter 20, uh, even, even death itself is thrown into the lake of fire in verse 14. All that is left, when death itself is thrown into the lake of fire, all that is left after that is life, eternal life. And eternal life is the glorious theme of the final chapters of Revelation. All right, well, hey, thanks for hanging in there for uh, over 20 minutes of, of talking about Revelation 20. I hope that after this you have a bit of better understanding of it. And so just a few thoughts from Revelation 20 tomorrow on to Revelation 21.